The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. If you have your Bible, why don't we go to God's Word this morning, to Acts chapter 1. And we've been, we've been in the book of Acts. We started actually last week, this new series, um, learning about what it means to be God's faithful witness in, our, in His world. And so we're continuing today in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. We'll read 6 to 14 for our, our passage this morning. And as we come to God's Word, it's good to be reminded that um, these are not just mere words on a page, um, but these are God's words. And so when we receive them and listen to them, it's God's wishing to speak to us. And so we receive them with humble hearts and ears ready to listen, hearts ready to receive. Let's read in verse 6. And this is after Jesus' resurrection. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. A cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is God's word. Well, if you missed it, last week we began teaching uh, through the book of Acts, and If the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are um, teachings about Jesus' life and ministry, what he did and what he said while he was alive on earth, then the book of Acts is all about his, his work that he continues to do through the Holy Spirit, working through his followers and his church and the growth of the Christian church in the world. And if we could attempt to sum up the entire book of Acts in one verse or one phrase, we could give a stab at it and say that it's this in Acts chapter 20, where the Apostle Paul says this, my goal is this, my goal in life is this, to be a witness of the gospel of the grace of God. That's that's Paul's whole life purpose, and if we could sum up the book of Acts, that's what it would be. It is to see our lives and our purpose to be a testimony, a witness to the grace of God and what he has done. It's our goal as well, that we would see ourselves as people living in mission, living with a a purpose that is of substance, that is actually given from God, witnesses to the grace of God in our lives wherever we can. As we shape our values, as we work in our workplaces, as we leisure on the weekends and with friends uh, in our neighborhoods, it is to give a testimony to what God has done in our lives in every area. And the context of this passage that we read is Luke's very brief description of the period of time between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. His resurrection from the grave 
and, and his ascension into heaven. And this very brief time, in just a few verses, he covers. The ascension of Jesus is so important that it's the only incidence that Luke mentions twice. It's the only thing in Jesus' life that he reminds us of a second time. And what we learn from it is really important to the Christian life. And in reality, there's 40 days between the period of Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his ascension into heaven. 40 days! And here he goes so quickly through it. It's Luke. Luke is not concerned with the timeline. He's not concerned with focusing on the amount of time that has passed, but he's more concerned with focusing on the two topics of discussion, the two main topics of discussion that Jesus had with his disciples, mainly the discussion of the kingdom of God and the power of God that would come and fill their lives and empower them to proclaim the kingdom of God. And we learn about these two topics as they're introduced in two different questions. If you notice, as we read this passage, there's two questions that are asked. One is the question that is asked of the disciples to Jesus. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And the second question is asked of the angels as they stood with the disciples when Jesus ascended into heaven. When they asked, why are you staring up into heaven? And so these two questions teach us so much. If you stop and observe, you'll realize that, that often questions that we ask or questions that other people ask are really telling of our motivations. They really reveal our heart's intention. They, they tell us a lot about what we understand about life or what we, what we lack in understanding by simply the questions that we ask. For instance, there are questions that reveal our lack of understanding. I remember some time ago standing in Target and just staring at the shelf, looking at a product that I wish to purchase. And a customer comes up to me, which felt rather quickly and rather closely, standing next to me and simply asked, as they stood with one product in one hand and one product in the other, and they say, could you tell me the difference between these two things? They look the same, but the prices are different, and I'm having a hard time deciding which one to buy. And I look down, and I am wearing a red polo and khaki <laughs> pants. Do not wear a red polo and khaki pants at Target unless, unless you know how to use a register, okay? And so the questions we ask sometimes reveal our lack of understanding about the situation. There are questions that reveal our, uh, what occupies our hearts. It reveals what, what really is going on in our heart. Think about the questions you ask. Sometimes they can reveal what's really important to you. We're driving to dinner with our family, and the low fuel warning comes on in the car. And there's a ding, and then the low fuel warning. And my son, who sees this uh, from the back, he says, Dad, you're out of gas. you got to get gas. And I said, no, it's okay, son. It actually just means that I'm, I'm low on gas. And he says, well, how many miles do you have left? And I say, we got about 20 miles left. And he says, how many miles is it from the restaurant to ice cream? <laughs> like two miles. He's like, okay, we're good. That's all I cared about. See, the questions we ask reveal what we're thinking about, and what's important to our heart. But then there's, there's obviously more serious questions that we ask in life, life-changing questions. Will you marry me? Did I get the job? What did the doctor say? See, these questions can be serious. They can be life-altering. These two questions in this text are so important. They're so important because they steer us in the right direction. 
for our very purpose of our existence in life, to proclaim the grace of God, to be faithful witnesses to the gospel of the grace of God. And these two questions, Luke wants us to know, because they are going to steer us in the right directions, they're going to form our habits, they're going to form our perspectives, they're going to form everything in our life, and we need to know what is going on in these two questions. After Jesus rose from the dead, he comes to his disciples, and they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's question number one. He said to them, it's not for you to know the seasons or the times, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. And he was lifted up, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And while they were staring at him, as he ascends into the sky, and a cloud hides him from their view, two angels appear to them and say, why are you staring up at the sky? That's question number two. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for the very task for which they were born, for the very task for which they were saved. He's preparing them for a life of faithful witness, to be his representatives in the world, and to teach and proclaim the good news of his grace. And now he's preparing them for a life that he can use. And these two questions will prepare them for a life that he can use so that they can be his faithful representatives in the world. First, let's look at this brief overview of these two questions of the scene of what's happening in this passage. And then I want to give you four necessary reactions to these two questions that we should have if we want to be a faithful witness. Let's look at this overview. Luke tells us that Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples providing proofs that he is alive. Imagine this, 40 days he's spending time with them, proving to them that he's really alive. He proves it to them day one, maybe even day 10. He's like, are you really here? They're thinking, are you really here? Prove it to us again. And he proves to them. And, it, and we, we are led to believe that he has to spend 40 days proving to them that he really is alive, that he's not a ghost, that he is bodily resurrected. Re- resurrected. And here he teaches them theology, teaches them theology and carefully articulates how everything that has happened to him and everything that has been written in God's word is part of God's perfect plan for the redemption of the world. And he takes this thread and he ties it through the Old Testament and he shows them, he, he, he opens their minds to understand God's word and how it's all about him. He teaches them about the kingdom of God, a time where God would establish the kingdom of the Messiah, where Jesus would rule over all of the people of God as king, and he would defeat their enemies, and he would remove their sorrows, and he would restore their peace. And an indication that the kingdom would come was that God would give the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and it would come upon his people, and it would empower them to live lives full of power and peace. And it's this very thing that caused his disciples to say, are you going to do that now? Because you've been talking about your kingdom, and you've been talking about the Spirit coming upon us, and we're putting the two together. Are you going to do that now? Are you going to bring your kingdom now? Are you going to take away our sorrows, and are you going to rule over us? Are you going to defeat our enemies? It's not a horrible question. We shouldn't put the disciples down by telling them that this is the wrong question to ask. 
It's not horrible. It's reasonable. It, re it reveals, though, so much misunderstanding about what the kingdom is really like. Jesus' reply, in essence, says this. The questions about the future are in God's hands. And I don't want you to concern yourself with when. I want you to concern yourself with how. I want you to concern yourself with what I am doing, what God is doing in your life and in your world for the sake of the whole world. The details belong to God, not you. That's a hard thing to hear. It's a hard thing for us to hear, isn't it? The details of God's plan for your life don't belong to you. They belong to God. We're a detailed people. We want to know the details of our lives. We want to get our ducks in a row. We want to know how the circumstances of our lives have to do with the bigger plan of what will happen in our life tomorrow and a year from now and a decade from now. We want to know and we like to think that our life is in our hands, that we, that the destiny of our lives belongs to us. And Jesus is telling his disciples, don't concern yourself with those things. It's not good for you to speculate about the details, but instead focus on the task that I've given to you. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. You will have power. Not political power or physical power, but spiritual power. In our world, the, world, the word kingdom means mostly territorial. That's how we understand it. We think of the kingdom in our sense as like the United Kingdom or the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the kingdoms of these worlds that are marked off by boundaries and territories. But the kingdom of God is spiritual in its character. You cannot point to it on a map. The disciples were still thinking about the kingdom of Israel. They were dreaming of the day that would come when, when they would have political dominion and liberation from Rome's colonial yoke and bondage. It's no coincidence that when the disciples ask a question about the kingdom of God, God doesn't even, I mean, Jesus doesn't even answer that question, but instead he responds with an answer about the power of the Holy Spirit. Power in God's kingdom is different from power in our kingdom, in earthly kingdoms. The kingdom of God is his rule in the lives of his people through an exercise of His Spirit changing our hearts and our very lives. The, the rule of God's kingdom in our lives is Him getting into our heart and changing our hopes and desires and dreams and ambitions and values and transforming the way that we live and the means of, of our living and the ends of our living and why we do everything in our life. His dominion over our lives is His ability to fill us with His presence and change what we love. And so we can't point to it on a globe or on a map. And it is spread by faithful witnesses who love Jesus and love seeing the expansion of His rule in our world. And not only will they have power, he says, but they will have power to proclaim his kingdom, not their own. Not power to proclaim their own kingdom, not power to make their lives better, but power to advance Jesus' reputation in the world. You see, the apostles still cherished 
this narrow aspirations that they had. And Jesus desired to broaden their aspirations, broaden their aspirations, their view of the kingdom of God. They asked if Jesus would bring back Israel to the good old days. Jesus, is this the time you will bring Israel back to the good old days? Jesus, is this the time where you will make Israel great again? I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? They asked if Jesus, is this the time when all that has gone bad and you will bring us back to the days when things were better? And he doesn't even answer the question. Instead, he, he indicates that the way that they're thinking about God's rule in their world is so narrow, and he wants to expand it. He wants to broaden it. He promised that the Holy Spirit would empower them and that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth for primarily one reason, because his rule is over an international community in which race and nationality and economics or education are no barriers to fellowship with God or one another. And they, in their narrow-mindedness, are thinking about, God, will you, will you restore Israel? Will you change my world so that my world is better? And when the kingdom is consummated at the end, and the countless redeemed company will Will, will be soon will be drawn, it will be seen as people who are drawn from every nation and every community and every tribe and every people and every language. And it's not that the disciples' question was outrageous. It's not that it was sinful in nature or offensive, but it was too narrow. And Jesus needed to broaden their view of what he came to do. He moves their perspective from imagining God blessing their lives in the small world that they knew to trusting in God and to depending on Him with their lives and everything He wanted to do in the world. And they would be challenged. They would be stretched. And they would be sent out as people on the move, living lives that are radically countercultural and proclaiming a message that was radically beautiful and gracious. He's telling them, it's not just about your world. It is about my world, my kingdom, and what I want to do. And you're going to be stretched. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be sent out. You're going to suffer, but you're going to be filled with power. You're going to have joy that's unshakable. You will experience my very presence that will give you peace. And it will cause them to give everything that they have for this. Not out of responsibility, not because Jesus told them to, but because they wanted to. They were that much filled and captivated by God's purpose in the world. That's the first question. <laughs> the second question, the text tells us that after he said this, he's lifted up and a cloud eventually hides him from their sight and the disciples are doing the very thing that every single one of us in here would be doing. What? What is happening? Can you believe this? Captivated with the awe of his glory and ascension, staring fixated on him, eyes fixed on heaven as far as they can see. Two angels appear and say, why are you looking up in the sky? You know, if you do a study of all the times angels speak in Scripture, I think you'll be amused. 
Um, they seem to lack a certain charm or grace that humans have. <laughs> when angels speak, you realize they're not human. Even though they appear in forms of as a human, in this sense, they appear as men. And this is what the angels will do this. They will appear as men. In an effort, actually, to not completely paralyze and, and destroy their humans, the humans there. But in their conversations, they say exactly what they're thinking. They say exactly what they mean to say. They say exactly what they've been told to say by God. They say exactly the amount of words necessary to get their point across and no more and no less. And they are never self-conscious. They are never ashamed. They, are never, they never feel guilty. They are so confident in what they say. They say it matter of fact, and they mean what they say. Why are you looking up at the sky? He has left and he will come back. And then he leaves. <laughs> they leave. The angels give the disciples everything they need to know. Jesus has gone up, and he will come down. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Do you have anything more? You came all of this way to tell me the obvious. They need to know the obvious. It is as if to say, this Jesus has gone up in glory and power, and he will come again in glory and power. He will come personally and visibly. He will come gloriously. This much is true. And he's asked you to do something. It's time to get to work. Why are you staring up here? He's done exactly what he said he would do. He went up and he will come down, and he told you what to do. What are you guys doing staring up at the sky? Staring in amazement and bewilderment, captivated by what you just saw. His mission is clear. Time to get to work. They say no more and no less than they need. He came and went. Jesus came and he went. And there must be another coming and another going. And Jesus says the, the Holy Spirit will come to you and it will empower you to go. Jesus has come. He has left. The Spirit will come upon you, and now it's time to go. We imitate Christ's coming. We imitate His, His, His presence, His incarnation. By the Spirit of God now coming into our lives with power, His person coming to us, the person of the Holy Spirit living in us, empowering us, enabling us to be His witnesses. Not to stay still, not to just continue to do what we want to do, not to ask God to make our lives better, but so that we could go out in power and be his witnesses wherever he's called us to go. The Spirit will come upon you, and you must go into the world. Why are you staring at the sky? What are you waiting for? What do we do with these questions? Let me give you a few reactions, four reactions. To, as God desires to prepare his people to be faithful witnesses. Because this part of this story is still this preparation. And for us in this series, it is about preparation. Before we think about, well, what do we do? What, how do we live? How do we connect pathways? How do we proclaim the good news? We must be people that are ourselves being prepared to be people that God can use 
as his faithful witnesses. And so first, we, like the disciples, must broaden our view of the kingdom of God. Jesus is pushing his disciples to go beyond where they are, not just physically, but he's preparing them to think differently about the kingdom. When they ask, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They might as well be asking this. Are you at this time going to give me what I think is best for my life? That's what they're asking. This is awesome that you just rose from the dead. What does this mean for us? Is this the time that we get everything we hoped for? What grief that must have caused, caused him. And I don't know what was going through his head, but he's broadening their perspective. He doesn't dignify the question by answering it. I imagine an eye roll or a head shake, maybe. But in love, in truth, in patience, he says, Spirit is going to come upon you. He's going to empower you. You're going to be my witnesses. He's expanding their view of the kingdom. The blessings of the gospel, the blessings of the grace of God, the good news of Jesus' first coming, that he came to die for sinners, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. When you hear that, do you think of it primarily as just about you? Do you think about it in just your individual way about how Jesus has benefited you and blessed your life and how it makes your life better? then you misunderstand the purpose, the broad purpose of his coming, just like the disciples did. Yes, it is good for you. It is good for your life. It is good for your personhood, your individual salvation. Of course, I do not want to minimize the beauty of salvation, of forgiveness of sins. But if we stop there, we have failed in the same way the disciples have failed. It is not just about a better life for you or your family. It is not just a better life for your city or your neighborhood or your state or your country. It is for all of God's purpose in the entire world. When, when Jesus came, when the angels again proclaimed the joy of the birth of Christ in the city of David, they rejoiced because it was, because it was good news for all people for the whole world, for all nations, because God's scope of his kingdom cannot be pointed to on a map. It is for all his purposes in the whole world. And the disciples fell into this trap and idol about making the personal blessings of salvation and the coming of Christ for their, for, for their own well-being, and they could only see as far as it related to their comfort and desire for change in their life. Our time and our lives should be spent telling of what, Jesus, what happened after Jesus' first coming. They came. He lived a perfect life. He, he lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. And he rose from the grave in triumph, defeating death and sin for us. And therefore, sin's hold on us has been destroyed. And by faith in Christ, we are forgiven. We are adopted into his family. We are accepted by his grace. And our time should be spent inviting people to believe in him and trust in him until his second coming, until he comes back. That's it. Our lives are spent telling people, here's what Jesus came to do in his first coming. 
and inviting them to believe until he comes again. The challenge for all of us this morning is to ask ourselves this question. Am I willing to say to God, God, I will see my life and the activities of my life as instruments of my witness to the good news of your grace? The challenge for all of us is to ask that question. God, am I, am I willing? Am I willing to see my life and my values and my habits and my everything that I do, my own job, my own family as instruments to be a witness to your grace in this world. Even if it takes me out of my comfort, my security, my preferences, the day-to-day decisions and practices and values of your life is the number one arena for living out your faithful witness. Do you want to be a faithful witness? Do you want to Do you want to respond to Jesus' call to you to be a faithful witness of his grace? The number one and primary arena for where that happens is in your values, your priorities, your habits, your time. It is in the things that you are already doing right now. Because we think so much about be about about doing things for God and doing things for his mission and thinking about what are the big things that we can do for God when we should be thinking what does it mean to be his people what does it mean to be his follower what does it mean to be a radically different person in this culture as it relates to values money sex power goals work What does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus? And Jesus wants to prepare us for that. You see, when we begin, uh, we began a series on being a faithful witness, you might be thinking about those things to do. And Jesus wants to somewhat press pause and say, I want you to focus on who you are to be. We are to be a people that are being much sooner than we are a people that are doing. The kingdom of God must transform our lives. The kingdom must be much broader than what we see. Another reaction that we should have is this. We must not get so caught up in what we don't know that we ignore what we do know. The disciples asked, is this the time? And Jesus' answer, we have to assume his answer is perfect and true and just and good. It is the right answer to give because Jesus gives it And here is what he says in essence. He says, if you desire to follow me, you must be willing to be left not knowing about a lot of things that I've not revealed to you. This is hard. If you want to follow me, you must be willing to not know a lot of the details about what I haven't showed you. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to not know the details of God's plan? That's hard. And you must give yourself completely, though, to the things that I have revealed to you. Are you willing to do that? You must find contentment in the things you don't know. And you must find boldness and confidence in the things you do know. But oftentimes, what do we do? We focus on the things we don't know. And the things we do know, we say, yeah, yeah, that's great, that's great, that's awesome, but what about the things that I don't know? Let me spend the rest of my life trying to figure out those things. Huh? Come on, God. What about those things? And he says, don't get caught up in the things you don't know. 
Get caught up in the things you do know. And here's what you know. And here's what you need to know. And this should be enough to allow you to spend the enti your entire life giving yourself to the things you do know. This is why elsewhere Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Because what good is it going to do to worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow's in the Father's hands, and he loves you. And you're in the Father's hands, and he loves you, and he cares for you. What amount of time, what benefit is it to worry? Can you add to your life by worrying? Can you add to your days by thinking about the things that you don't know? You cannot. But instead, reflect on the things you do know, that your Father cares for you that he has clothed the lilies of the field and he feeds the bird of the air, how much more does he care for you? He has told you those things. He has told you that you are like a child and he is a father to you and he loves you. He has told you that he has, that he has done all that is sufficient for you to be accepted in the Father's love. And nothing can take you away from, from that. He has told you that he's coming back and he will gather you to himself. He has told you that he will never forsake you or leave you. He's with you right now. What else do you need? What else could you possibly want? Well, I want to know the little detail of that thing that I don't know about in my life. I want you to fix that. I mean, this is true. When we find one encouragement, or we have, or we have, we have hundreds of encouragements throughout our day, and that one discouragement will set us off. We'll focus on that for the rest of our life. And we do that with God. He has given to us and provided for us pages and pages and pages of a love story to show us the depth of his love and commitment to us, so much so that he would give everything that he has, so much so he would give the very thing that he cherishes most, the love of his own son. He would give his own son to us. And we still look back at him and say, that's not enough. I still need to look. What else can you give me? And there's, he says, there's nothing else that I have. What does that mean for you? Well, it means that we should take a step forward in the very things in our life that he has given us. It means that we take a step forward in the things that God has put before us and asking those questions, what does it mean to be faithful, to faithfully trust and depend on Jesus in this area of my life? What can I apply from what I know about God and who he is and what he has done to this crisis, to this discouragement, to this conflict? to this grief and sorrow and pain in my life. The late pastor and Bible teacher John Stott says this, we are to be witnesses, not stargazers. And I just love that. We are to be witnesses, not stargazers, staring up at, at the, the at bewilderment and the amazement of God. And the angels come and say, all right, you're to be witnesses, not stargazers. This is not your job, just to stare up at the things of God and figure out what is going on. Our vision should not be upwards in a sense of nostalgia for the things of heaven, nostalgia and romance for the things that we desire to be, but outwards in compassion to the lost world which needs Jesus. Christ will come personally, visibly, bodily, gloriously. Other details can wait. He's given us a work to do. That should be a, one of our reactions to these questions. Here's another reaction. We must pay attention to what occupies our thoughts, affections, and time. In this passage, we see a double dose of correction. A double dose of correction to the disciples. In the first way, they were hoping for an earthly kingdom and an earthly uh, 
resolution of political power. And Jesus says, my kingdom is spiritual. Take your eyes off of the ground and look up to heaven and see what I am doing. And, 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 they, and Jesus says, my kingdom is spiritual and much different than you view it. And in the second way, they were hoping for a spiritual thing. They're looking up into heaven. They're fixated on the spiritual things. And the angels say, what are you doing looking at spiritual things? Get your eyes on the ground. And they're like, what are we supposed to do? Which is it? Are we supposed to be fixated on heaven? Or are we supposed to be fixated on my life? Yes. <laughs> this, is a, this is what I call spiritual whiplash. I'm so focused on the things of my life. God says, take your eyes up to heaven. Okay, I'm looking at you. And the angels say, take your eyes off of heaven and put it on the things of your life. I give up. What do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do? The disciples are focused on earthly things. Jesus says, focus on the kingdom that is spiritual. They're focused on spiritual things. And he says, focus on the task that I've given to you on this earth. Do we focus on God? Do we focus on people? What is it? Being a faithful witness rejects a false sense of earthly things manifested in just social activism. A, a faithful witness rejects this, this false sense that all of life is about making just our earth a better place. It's also rejecting a false sense that all of life should be spent dwelling on spiritual things, growing in our relationship with God and growing in a deeper relationship with Him. And what He is showing us is that in order to be faithful, we must reject both of those things in themselves and focus on a life that is, that is not just too heavenly or not too earthly, but one that sees our, the spiritual calling to which we have been called and empowered by His Spirit to engage in an earthly sense in our world and the people around us. What occupies your thoughts, your desires, your affections, your time? Is it one or the other? Are you too heavenly? Are you focused too much on a spiritual kingdom? Are you focused too much on, on just growing with Jesus, looking intently on the things of God through study and reflection that you have forgotten to be on the move? that you have forgotten that God has called you to be a sent people into the world? Are you so focused on your personal weaknesses that you have never moved from, this, from the place where you are? Because you're just thinking, you know, I, God's got a lot of work to do on me. And I don't want to be an empty salt shaker. I just, God's got to fill me up with salt. You know, if I've got to be salt to the world, i just got to spend at least the next 20 years just kind of growing. Are you focused too much on your kingdom? Are you focused too much on the earthly things, your well-being, your world, your material affairs? Do you have forgotten to gaze on Christ and look up into heavens and see Christ as sovereign and good and Lord over all? Have you forgotten that he has gone up to heaven in glory and he will return and he has called you to do something? Are you too focused on just the well-being of the people around you that you have forgotten to actually look at Jesus and to enjoy Him and grow in Him? Do you feel the world rests on your shoulders and you're anxious about many things? Well, you then your kingdom is too earthly and you need to look up to heaven. 
Are you too intellectual in the sense of just, just dwelling on the things of God and, your, and, and the heavenly things and desiring a time when Jesus comes back and all you can do in your life is wait, come back quickly, Lord, and take me from this broken place? Then your, your life is way too spiritual. He's called you to be a witness. You can't only grow spiritually. You must be a faithful witness. You cannot only be active in your world. You must grow spiritually. And here's the twofold danger that the disciples face and that you and I face as well. The first danger is that we will only gaze at Jesus growing in piety and knowledge and never being sent to witness. We dream of heavenly bliss and stargaze on the days ahead that are much better than the days now. And we know that he's coming back and we can't wait for him to return and we're holding our breath until he does. The other danger is that we will only engage in activity while taking our eyes off of Jesus. We are anxiously involved in toil in this world, engaging in spiritual activity, serving others, saying yes to everything because they are good things, worrying that if we do not become a blessing to other people, then what good are we in this life? All the while taking our eyes off of Jesus. We dream of establishing a better earth, a better neighborhood, a picture of a type of utopian society where neighbors love one another, and our families are witnesses to our neighbors, and our workplaces are transformed by our presence, where society is better and laws are changed because of our gospel witness, but we have forgotten how to love Jesus. What's the remedy to all this? Well, the remedy is our final reaction, is that we must engage in our earthly responsibility with our spiritual enabling. And this is what these two questions call us to. Jesus is preparing his disciples and us to be faithful in our ends and in our means. He's calling us to be faithful to the end to which he has called us. An earthly responsibility to be his witnesses, to tell people about his grace, to live it out in our lives. But he's also called us to be faithful to the means. It is not accomplished through your effort. It is not accomplished by your right doing. It's not accomplished by your character or the endurance of your energy. It is accomplished by the Spirit of God working in you. Faithful in our ends, to live in such a manner that will testify to God's grace. Faithful in our means, not through our spirituality, but through the power of God. How did Christianity grow early on? How is it today that in Tucson, Arizona, we gather around a message that was one hoped in by a group of 12 young men in the ancient Middle East. How is it possible that a group of people today are gathering around this great news that started with a small group of fishermen and uneducated men? It is because ordinary people became fountains of divine power and divine joy. And that's it. Ordinary people became a fountain, a vessel for God to use that were filled with God's presence and power and his joy and went out and did what Jesus said, not on their own character and endurance, but on his power. They searched the scriptures. They sharpened one another in community. They prayed. They moved forward, trusting in God's leading, depending on God at every step. The disciples walked back to Jerusalem, and Luke tells us how they occupied the next 10 days between Jesus' ascension and between them receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus promised. They spent it 
constantly in prayer. Seeking God for that spiritual enabling that would enable them to be responsible in their earthly task that God gave them. And God's power came upon him, upon them. And they burst out into the streets, proclaiming this good news with great joy. And they would spend the rest of their lives doing it. Jesus took ordinary people. He takes you and me, fills them with power to be his witnesses. And the world is changed forever. And it is continuing to be changed. And the kingdom of God expands far beyond our own eyesight and vision. And it expands as people depend on him and respond in faith to Jesus' commands to be witnesses. Are you prepared? Where do you need to be prepared? Where do you need to be sharpened? Do you need to put your eyes back on Jesus and say, God, I have been just busy with activity for you, and I have forgotten what it means to be a disciple of you? Or are your heads stuck in the clouds, pouring over God's word, spending time in prayer, and yet you've never been moved, you've never been sent, you have never proclaimed this news to anyone outside of your circle. Let's be people that are responsible to God's commands without ever letting our eyes leave His sight. Let's pray.